Fatal Investment Podcast, and we are talking about Texas tea today, black gold, oil. It's very, very important what's going on right now. Um, as you may know, oil is over $100 a barrel. What you may not know is that diesel um, prices are extremely high at the moment. And the reason I bring that up is uh, an oil analyst I've followed for a very long time is warning that this is choking the global economy. In fact, you may have seen stories uh, about Sri Lanka at the moment where they don't even have any petrol at all in the country and they can't afford to get any in. So the place is just ground to a halt uh, with you know riots and, and power out and just the economy is just a shambles. Also reading The Economist the other day uh, in parts of Africa, they're, they're cancelling flights and they, they can't move their trucks around because there is no diesel. Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, who really cares all, all about that? But fact of the matter is, is diesel pretty much fires the, the global economy. Uh, the oil industry calls uh, diesel and jet fuel middle distillates, and these are extremely hard to come by at the moment, mainly because uh, while there's oil around, it can't get through into the refineries because um, just with the aversion to fossil fuels and, and the structure of the industry, a lot of refineries have closed over the last few years. Uh, and so that's left the, the world short. So why do we care? Well, it, these are input costs for businesses that use it, for farmers trying to grow food um, with prices skyrocketing all over the place. So it's really, really important. And stocks get hit when stuff like this happens. A big example over in the US was Target recently came out and said, they had $1 billion in extra costs that they didn't expect from their um, uh, trucking and uh, freight division. Fell 25% on the day. So any stock uh, that has this as an input is of concern. Now, here in Australia, that to me puts uh, Qantas right in the crosshairs. crosshairs. Now, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, travel's coming back and et cetera, et cetera. But if this stress continues, there's an, there's no doubt that airlines are going to be paying a lot more money for their fuel to fly around the place. Anyway, that's the introduction. We want to get the man on the ground who follows all this and has done so for an extraordinary 50 years. So Philip Berger is a guy who runs his own consultancy business over in the US. As I said, I've followed him for many, many, many years. Um, he was kind enough to give us his time. And uh, for 77, he is just bursting with energy uh, and it's, it's, it's great to see. So and uh, engage with what's going on. And he's been publishing um, his weekly report for decades, in fact. So he has seen every single oil disruption since the 1970s. Obviously, with Russia-Ukraine uh, war going on, that's also important. So big things today. We're talking oil and what's going on in the oil market, what it means for economic growth, and why Philip is so worried. So here he is, Philip Belerga. Well, Phil, this is actually a thrill for me because, oh, um, as um, as I mentioned to you in my email to you, I've followed you now for five years at least, I think. And um, I guess the oil industry has become a little bit obscure more than it was. So I'm a bit strange in that way. But you were now warning that there's a serious recession coming um, with all your experience, and it's led by this diesel disruption. Can you explain to us why this is so serious um, from all your experience? Well, I'll try. Uh, and 
prompt me when you see uh, 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 I'm missing something. But you start from the very basic point that everybody in finance understands. Uh, inflation has gotten out of hand. And the central banks around the world focus almost exclusively on inflation. The U.S. central banks also has an employment uh, target, but you know that's irrelevant right now because we, essentially we're short a couple of million workers. And so the question becomes one of what are contributing to the uh, to the inflationary forces. One of them is the amount of money that was put out to fight COVID. Uh, the U.S. central bank's balance sheet's now about nine trillion dollars. They're going to cut it by a trillion dollars over the next year. So, you know, that, that's taking the punch bowl away. That's going to squeeze things. But the other side of this, the difference, having watched 73, the 73 to 79, 80 crisis, is that we have some real physical constraints. Now, there's been a lot of publicity on the logistic crisis, the, the ships backing up in, in Los Angeles Harbor and every place else. What has been missed is the inability to make diesel fuel, uh, which is the uh, critical fuel for the global economy. You need it to move trains. Uh, you need it out in Western Australia to move the, the metals. You need it every place you know, across Australia. You need it here. You need large volumes of it. And diesel fuel consumption is strong because the economy is recovered. Gasoline consumption is still pretty weak. And it is really this inability to make uh, diesel fuel, that it, uh, at least the diesel fuel that is mandated by the environmental types. Now, we've all seen trucks going up hills, belching black smoke. You don't see much of that anymore because everybody took the sulfur out. But taking the sulfur out is a an issue. It's a constraint. Uh, it takes natural gas, and it takes special kinds of refining capacity. And that's all in very short supply. So. Let me jump in there. <laughs> in 2018, um, you put out a piece warning about new shipping rules, environmental rules uh, that were to come in in 2020 that had the potential to spike oil. Is the situation we're in now a continuation of that trend that you spotted all those years ago? Yes. doesn't seem like all those years ago, but, uh, but in 2018, uh, I started watching uh, what were called the IMO rules, International Maritime Organization rules. And they had actually, at around 2010 or 29, uh, issued rules saying that they wanted to take sulfur in, mar in marine fuels from 2.5% to half a percent. And they had some, economy, uh, some uh, consulting studies done, which showed that, in fact, uh, that was feasible. Uh, now, I started looking at this. Uh, the International Energy Agency was also looking at this. And you looked at it and said, this could really constrain the supply of diesel fuel to the rest of the economy. Because what it takes is you, you take a crude oil from Saudi Arabia, which produces a lot of it produces more uh, diesel fuel than any other crude, really. And, but it has a lot of sulfur. And so you have to desulfurize it. And we were short of the capacity to desulfurize it. Well, uh, they, everybody ignored that, and uh, those some people like I were writing saying, hey, this could send oil prices up, this could cause a recession. Uh, we were ignored, and, and the rules went into effect on January 1, 2020. Now, 
what happened shortly after that was COVID arrived. And so suddenly people stopped using diesel, diesel demand dropped, jet fuel demand dropped, and jet fuels is similar to diesel fuel. It's a lighter version of, uh, of the uh, middle distillates. And so there was no problem. And everybody says, oh, you were wrong. Uh, I guess. I, <laughs> and yeah, hey, uh, yeah, one of the rules of forecasting is never put a number and a date on the same piece of paper. <laughs> you broke both of them. <laughs> and, and I broke both of them. That's right. And uh, so, it, but uh, so we fast forward to uh, uh, 2022. And what we've done, meantime, oil prices were negative. Uh, President Trump asked OPEC to cut production. OPEC said, oh, hey, we will. And this, uh, the Russians joined and they have maintained their very slow increase in production. And, and so we lost a bunch of the middle uh, of the Saudi crew that would was really good for this. We wound up instead with a lot of uh, this uh, Permian Basin crude, which doesn't produce much diesel fuel. And so we get ourselves into uh, kind of January, February of this year and distal inventories are going down and, and the market's getting very tight. And then we get the U invasion of Ukraine and we're going to take uh, the Russian oil off the market. Well, that's more diesel fuel. So suddenly we have a huge diesel shortage, a uh, very tight market. You know, the premium of diesel is, which I've been following oh, since 1986, never much more than, uh, you know, the forward over the cash of something like 10 cents, 15 cents, suddenly spikes to a dollar. Uh, and that was 12 standard deviations uh, uh, above the mean. If you've taught statistics as I have, uh, you, you say that the probability of that of ever occurring is zero. Well, it has, and we're short, and and we're really heading into the summer and the next fall when distillate demand increases, and we have a problem. It, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I remember reading your report about the 2008 spike, and uh, I was amazed at the time to to when you you said in that piece that there was oil on ships just sitting there, but they weren't any good to anybody. They needed the, the particular type of oil to produce this kind of um, these products. Are we going to get a same situation where this sort of hunt for the, the low sofa oil drags up the, the main oil um, crude indexes? Well, so it, it, in theory, we should. But, and I have this little model that I, I developed based on the, uh, the, uh, in the, uh, in the book that you have, the, uh, oil markets in turmoil, uh, and I take the daily price of, uh, of the products in New York, and it does a pretty, it did a really good job of predicting the price of crude. Now, this model was developed with data in 1980, uh, 1997, and uh, it's extended forward. It, it's a model where uh, uh, econometrically it's conditional uh, dynamic forecast. That is, the model knows nothing about what happened to the oil market uh, after the end of 1997. So you have about 6,000 observations. And it came within a dollar or so of predicting the price of crude up until about March 4th. Wow. Right, now it, right now it says the, the, uh, the price should be $150 a barrel. It's not. It's, it's uh, around 108 today, I guess. Uh, the, the, and the reason it's broken apart is, uh, is the backwardation in the product market. I mean, the just this huge backwardation. In so can you just explain that term? Most people won't know what that means. Uh, happy to. Uh, backwardation is a condition that occurs when the cash price is well above the forward price. Uh, and so oil, say, for delivery today could be $105 a barrel. 
crude oil say uh, for two years of uh, uh, 36 months forward might be $90 a barrel. So that, that would be a $15 backwardation. It's the premium over the cash. And, and Lord Keynes, and I never quoted exactly, but had this great, uh, great comment. He's a great commodity trader, said, look, that if the shortage condition, the cash price can go to a premium over the forward price uh, and, uh, of, of essentially infinite amount. If there's, if there's no inventories around right now and you think there'll be plenty of stuff around six months from now, you, you could be paying double the price for the cash uh, for the uh, prompt. And we're almost doing that for just So essentially that's just the market saying we want it now. And we, if whatever's available, we're going to take it. Well, if I, if I'm running a trucking company and I have to make deliveries uh, and I have, I'm under contract to make the deliveries today in Melbourne. Uh, if they, somebody says, well, I'll get you the diesel fuel next week. That's useless to me. I need it now. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, the same thing's happening here in, uh, where I am in Denver, Colorado, in the, in the Rocky Mountains. We need it now. The railroads need it now. Where do we get it? Uh, and refining capacity has been cut uh, for several reasons. And so suddenly we just can't make the diesel fuel. So it's, it's a really harsh, hard constraint that's going to hold down uh, uh, economic activity. Now, you're... Um... Not sure how to describe it, but we'll call it Bloomberg Javier Blast wrote an article recently where he said that for for consumers, oil is already like 150 to 200 dollars a barrel because the products that we're buying have gone up. Um, do you agree with that at least? Oh yes. No, Javier is is very good at kind of covering commodities where he gets and he had a wonderful piece in January where he pointed out the huge number of options on $300 crude in the Brent market. I've been following it pretty closely and he, he was exactly right. Uh, so yes, I mean, this is what my model, my model says the price, the price should be $150 a barrel. Uh, this, this model is following the New York market. Uh, the crude's much lower because in fact, credit conditions, credit constraints on refiners. And the fact that if, gee, if I'm a refiner, I buy the oil today, I'm going to sell the product three months from now. I can't get that high price of distillate to, uh, uh, today for three months from now. I'm going to get a much lower price. Right. So yeah. it is, it's, it's the extreme, the backwardation of the product market has driven a wedge between crude and products. That's interesting though, but surely if the market's panicking about diesel supplies, wouldn't it start to lock up the future price in a bid, bid them, bid them up as well. Or it doesn't work like that. Well, it doesn't work like that. I mean, it, it go, back to, <laughs> go back to Keynes. I mean, if it's in the first place, the futures market has shrunk. It's about one, it's declined about 33% in terms of size. And part of that's banks aren't lending to these people. You know, you know if I'm a banker, uh, I'm not sure I want to cover the margin payments uh, or uh, I don't I finance a, uh, an oil company uh, that's selling products today forward three months uh, because as the price goes up, that bank's going to have to produce, come up with margins even though it's essentially on the hedging, if it's properly hedged, it's not going to lose money. But I mean, the margin obligation on the futures market is getting to be uh, pretty harsh. So well, you, you mentioned know, the, the Harvey's article in January about the algos, which is another thing that you've tracked for yeah. a while, which is kind of separate right. to the diesel thing. Right. Where do they come into play with all this then? Is, is the diesel situation sort of neutralizing their influence on the price or are they still in the mix somehow? No, the algos are driving this thing. Uh, if you look, if, if you go through and uh, do uh, 
the delta margin in calculation, and, and now I'm getting really Greek. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's uh, yeah, I go I, I, I'll, I go back to the origin of this thing because I shared a computer with Bob Merton who invented the option pricing models back in the '60s uh, when we were both at MIT. But the if uh, if I've written a, a call option to somebody on Brent, and the price goes up, and, and it's a December call, I'm obligated to buy more futures to re remain what's called delta neutral. And what, what I find, what I found since early March, is that the change in the uh, obligation, the delta, the, uh, new, uh, delta obligation, uh, has a correlation of about 90.98 with a change in the price of the specific future. In this case, I'm following the December uh, uh, 2022 uh, Brent futures contract. So, I mean, it, it, the hedging is adding, you know, because there's so many options out there, uh, the, the need to hedge them is adding to the price volatility of crude. And are, those, are those options coming from like U.S. producers hedging their, their, their actual production or is it speculators buying calls on oil? Well, it's probably, probably it was as if you read Javier's uh, January 18th article, he was talking about how a lot of traders were gambling on $300 crude. Uh, so it may have been they've taken their positions. Uh, the, the long positions, that is the number of calls outstanding, hasn't changed very much. But the thing is that the number of futures you have to buy to hedge those calls keeps changing as the price changes. Right. Uh, and so if, if, if the price of, uh, of Brent goes up 50 cents because there's more buying for physicals, then the hedging will then magnify this. The algos will mag magnify this, and you'll get a two fifty or three dollar change in the price of oil. And oh. it's, it's, go ahead. So this is the, the background to the dynamic. Now, you're suggesting that this is going to drive the world economy into a recession. Um, at what are we in it now? Are we on the cliff? Are we a month away? Two months away? Or does it does it take like like a, a further rise up in the in the prices to really tip it over? What's your view? I uh, well, you know the data on physical activity lags. Uh, the best information you get on prices and markets, and I am beginning to see uh, the signs of already slowing down, particularly in the case of distillate fuel oil. And I think I think we are actually, you know, when when the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research dates this recession, they will probably say it started in either May 2022 or June 2022. It's it's getting underway today in the U.S. The stock market took a huge drop uh, because Target, Walmart and some other companies reported very large, uh, very unexpected uh, shortfalls in, in their income. It's. And it just, it's, if you look at the telltale signs, I think it started uh, in part also because the Fed has said, look, uh, we're going we're gonna to be tough. I mean, one of the points in, uh, in Javier's most recent piece was that, oh, this is only going to be a mild recession. And then the same day, uh, Jerome Powell came out and he said, oh, uh, you know, the person I admire is Paul Volcker. And yes, we are going to get inflation down. Now, I, you know, it's I got to work a little with Paul Volcker, not much, but I was at the U.S. Treasury and I watched him. And then I had to borrow to build a house in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1982, I think. And I think I paid 15 percent for my construction loan. 
I mean, the, you know, if they are serious about this, we are going to have very high interest rates because of all these constraints, the labor constraints, the diesel constraints, the uh, what's going on in China. I mean, the, the Chinese lockdowns are going to ha- are going to work, work their way through in terms of limited supplies of various products. Do you think, it's, sorry, I was going to say, do you think the Fed has a problem with the US dollar though? If they keep raising rates, isn't it just going to drive the dollar higher and higher? Uh, you know, if you're running the central bank, you have to decide what your target is. And one of the things about a stronger dollar is it tends to reduce the inflationary pressure. So if I'm the Fed and, and, uh, and I'm really, if we're repeating what happened in the uh, 1980s, I'm just going, I'm going to, I'm going to keep reducing my balance sheet. Putting, uh, and squeezing that way, and I'm gonna, uh, and the rates are going to go up. And one of the things we're going to see is uh, a stronger dollar. So, you, in a sense, you're saying America first. Like it's, if you're an emerging market economy and you've got dollar, it's kind of your problem. We're taking care of home. Well, well, yes. It, it's in the short term, it has to be America first. Now, here you get get into a, a, a serious debate, and I have never participated as kind of a. Uh, I've been on person sitting on the wall listening to the to the main players talk about this but uh if the the world needs the strong dollar a solid currency we that means we have to address our inflationary infl- problem with inflation that also means that that's going to create problems for countries of uh, other countries that have borrowed in in dollars and have floating rate uh, interest the other side of the emerging market problem, which I think is is more severe, is that the uh, uh, the Chinese are not part of the Paris Club. Now, the Paris Club uh, has always worked to kind of negotiate uh, uh, loan agreements with uh, uh, countries that can't meet their loans, like Sri Lanka today. Yeah. It's but they, you know, the Paris Club's not going to jump into this thing unless China is part of it, because the last thing other the lenders in the United States and Europe want to do is take a haircut on their loans, and then the Chinese demand full payment. And we don't even know how much China has lent to many of these countries. So it, it, yeah, this is, this is, that makes this situation a, a lot more frightening. I'm just thinking um, in terms of, I read at least, I think this is true, that China is not exporting as much refined product as it has in the past, if that's, I think that's true. Is it conceivable that the U.S. would do something similar? I mean, they, you only started exporting oil what was it seven years ago now when Obama yeah. overturned it? Is it conceivable that the U.S. would would keep it at home? It's. I think China has limited the exports of distilled fuel, and I was talking to a, a government official today, and they weren't familiar with this. And I said, "Look, one of the things you need to do is kind of quietly tell the Chinese, relax, allow more exports, because this will be good a for the uh, for the world economy." And B, that means it'll be good for your export, particularly to the United States. Uh, and I think that is much more important for the uh, to to talk to the Chinese quietly, not pound, pound the table or anything else, and get them to relax the restrictions on, on export uh, on exports. They have a, a million barrels, mil, a million and a half barrels a day of surplus refining capacity, so they can fill this gap. They're one of the one of the sources. Uh, what we don't want to do is impose uh, uh, limits on our exports. And I don't think we'll do that because we're pushing 
to increase exports of natural gas. And that's caused natural gas prices at the wellhead to go up way up here in the United States. But mm. we want to we want to replace Europe's Russian gas with our gas. And so, the, yeah, it, it under the current circumstances in Western Europe uh, and with the war in Ukraine, the last thing we want to do is step uh, is do something about limiting exports. Yeah, I just want I didn't wasn't advocating, by the way, I was just wondering if you saw some push towards that. No, I I think that the uh, uh, hopefully the U.S. government people in the U.S. government can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> when I um when I read a lot of the stuff put out by analysts, there's there's a notion that oil has been underinvested in for the last ten years, say, uh, and that therefore it's in a structural bull market. They call it. Do you agree with that view? Well, I. Uh, it's uh, it, under the uh, underinvestment is correct. Uh, it, you know, in seven, as I, I think I said at the start, in 70, in the 73 to seven, uh, 79 or 82 crisis, we didn't have a refining problem because the major oil companies made sure there was plenty, multinationals made sure there, were, sure there was always surplus capacity so the prices wouldn't go up. They, wa- they wanted steady prices and they have the capacity they're you know they've gotten out of this business shell only wants to own 10 refineries now they used to own 50 uh and nobody stepped in so there is a problem on the capacity side and it's not going to get replaced it's not going to get fixed i don't think very many people maybe the the saudis have invested in new refineries maybe some other oil exporting countries will do it to try to keep their market going but there is the investment is not going to return it's you know, too much. You know, everybody is worried about fossil fuels being stranded. A lot of fossil fuels will be stranded uh, for global warming reasons, and so it's very hard to get huge investors interested in pouring money into uh, into projects that are going to take ten years to develop. You know, a refinery, a new refinery, would take you ten, fifteen years to really get going. And it's even hard to get money to to reactivate a refinery. There, there's one of the Virgin Islands that people desperately want to bring back on, uh, but it, it's so polluting that the EPA won't let them. And the amount of money they're going to have to invest in it to bring it back online is prohibitive. And the, the other problem is, where do you find the people to uh, the to do the work? Uh, was I, it, did I, that it, one just have, did that use Venezuelan oil as well? That one that was Jove, that was Hovesa. It was designed to use Venezuelan oil. Uh, uh, Amarada Hess originally owned it, and uh, and then they split. Uh, they uh, sold half to Jove, so the, then they finally shut it down. But what the people who were going to bring this thing back online were going to do was use U.S. crude. Now, it, 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 it's this is you know part of the thing in energy is what are the regulations uh, in the United States, and I think in Australia, if you move cargoes from one port to another port in the United States, it has to be moved on a U.S. flagship. And in the United States, that U.S. flagship has to have been built in a U.S. shipyard. This is, uh, goes way back to 1920. The idea is we want to keep shipyards going so we can keep our Navy going and everything and, and going falling through. It's called the Jones Act. It's been a, a, a problem for a long time. <laughs> uh, the Jones, the, uh, the uh, uh, St. Croix refinery is uh, on St. Croix which is a U.S. Uh, 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 territory. The Jones Act doesn't apply. So the people are reactivating this thing. We're going to hire foreign flagships, which the, it costs roughly a quarter to move as much on, on a foreign flagship. 
to move the crude from Houston or Galveston to to the Virgin Islands. And you could do that even if there was uh, imports were uh, banned. And, and then they were going to process it there and then bring it back on foreign flag tankers to uh, consumers on the East Coast. And it, it was a it was a regulatory wrinkle. And it's still in effect. The, 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 the problem is the facility uh, was not in very good shape. And when they powered it up, they uh, they really polluted the area around St. Croix and, and, and they had to shut it down and and, the, and, the, and it hasn't come back up. It, you know, the whole reactivation, by the way, was thought of as a way to meet some of the demands for the IMO diesel rules. Uh, this is going to be a, 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 something that would help the IMO diesel rules. It would help more if we could get Venezuelan crude or a Middle Eastern crude in there, which produces a bigger yield of a diesel, but uh, it's, it's sitting idle right now. I noticed you've been writing lately that you seem to think the end of oil is going to come quicker than others presuppose. Are you basing that on the idea that governments will just will fund whatever they can to, to, to get rid of it, basically? Uh, uh, it's both governments. The co- one of the things that's amazing now is the cost of solar and many uh, most renewables is very competitive. Uh, and just uh, like early in May, uh, I just came out, it was just uh, became public. A hundred CEOs in Europe wrote uh, the president of the European Union, uh, Ms. von der Leyen, von der Leyen uh, calling on her to accelerate the EU's move to get off fossil fuels. I mean, it, it, it's the Europe's leading the way. They've discovered they made a mistake in, in linking up with Russia. And so, you know, they're going to look for other sources, but their, their real move is to, to move rapidly to not use much fossil fuel. And then they're going to have border taxes so that if you're India and you want to export to, the, uh, to Europe and your country is not, uh, has not uh, joined in, in kind of getting off fossil fuels, your exports will pay big duties and essentially you won't be competitive. Uh, it, it's a way that's going to come. And if the recession comes, as I think it is, it's going to come much quicker. The other part of this thing is the breakthroughs on uh, on some of these things like, like electrical vehicles. Uh, in the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal, the U.S. Uh, publications of the Saturday issue, Dan Neal, who is a, covers cars, uh, wrote a review of the new Ford F-150 electric, vehicle, electric truck. And it was a rave review, and he's usually pretty critical. I mean, what they have done is they've come up with a big, the big truck, which people like for working. It's got a 300-mile range. It's also got the power, so if you're a welder or something like that, you don't have to take a, a, tra- uh, a transformer along. You can run your welding gear off your uh, off the truck uh, for several hours. You can power your home if the power goes out uh, for several days. I mean, they put a big enough battery in there. And the, the question is, uh, can they find enough metals and everything to make the batteries? But I, I'm pretty convinced they will. So what's happened is the whole technology is changing. Where I where we live here in Denver, about one out of every six cars that goes by every day is a, uh, a Tesla. Uh, it's, you know, the, and if you look at California gasoline, uh, taxable gasoline data, you see just a huge drop, uh, data just came out today, uh, in, in gasoline sales in the state relative to vehicle miles traveled. I think the reason, uh, is that, uh, you, if you have an electrical electric vehicle, you can drive on the LA freeways, uh, on the carpool lanes and, and get around faster. 
And you also don't have to pay the high gasoline prices so that electric vehicles are going to be used uh, uh, at least within the cities and so on uh, at a much greater rate than everybody expects. Just going back, this is going to go right back to when you're in the 1970s. Did you choose to specialize in oil because it was a, because it was so important back then, and obviously there was a lot of money floating around the industry. Or how did you end up in oil uh, in the first place? Well, I, st- I started out do- doing energy, and it was, I just finished my PhD, and there were this and the energy policy project, which was really a, a kind of one of the more important things, and they wanted some economic help in the thing, and so I started looking at it. Now, as, as my father had been an outside lawyer on the West Coast, Los Angeles, uh, worked for the oil industry and worked on environmental rules. So I knew a lot about the environmental rules and so on, but this was going to be a two or three year thing. And then I was going to move on to cover <laughs> something else. <laughs> and now here I am 51 years later, and I'm still stuck on it. And I, and I got fascinated by oil. Maury Edelman, who was a great professor at MIT was, was influ- highly influential. And then you know, I, I was in the government working the council of economic advisors for president Ford and at the U S treasury for um, president Carter. And I, more and more, it was about oil. It basically, my focus had been regulations, and we had price controls and everything else. And, and so this, uh, Mike Blumenthal, who was the Secretary of Treasury, hired me essentially to get, get rid of the price controls and, uh, on oil. Because uh, if you could go back to the 1979 Tokyo summit, the whole focus was on the U.S. price controls. The U.S. wanted to get rid of them because we had a dollar problem then. And so I just more and more got into oil. And then I got into, I was, I was teaching for a little bit at Yale and I got into commodity markets and, and wound up uh, working with a firm on uh, Wall Street for a little bit, helping get the uh, WTI contract going. So I started writing a lot about commodity markets and I've taught a lot on commodity markets, but it's always been commodity markets, oil and everything. It just, it, somehow it always comes back to oil. Well, I'm just thinking if a young man came to you today, would you tell him to specialize in lithium or NEVs or, and say, stay away from oil like it's done? Well, yes, I, I would definitely, uh, yeah, I, what I would, my focus would be uh, markets. And that's what my focus has always been, markets. You know, markets are, fun, are, are, re, are just fascinating and, and to, uh, to focus on it. And what happened, what happened in my case is I'm focusing on the oil market, and what's all wrong with it and everything else. So I get more involved in oil, but it's focused on the markets. You know, focus on lithium. Uh, I don't think lithium is going to be as complicated, but I mean, it's, you start digging into this. So you, you, for example, I was talking to, uh, to a friend today in the government and trying to explain this distillate thing. And so most economists just think about crude oil. They don't understand that there are different flavors, flavors of crude oil, like they're different flavors of ice cream. Hmm. And the some produce more diesel than others. And I didn't know until I read your stuff either. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it's, it, but I mean, it's unless you're uh, most of the time, it doesn't matter. But it's, you know, you know so what I would tell a young economist, if you're going to do monetary economics, do monetary economics, but get really good on all the little kind of uh, details of it. Uh, uh, you know, the great story about Alan Greenspan is and he, the way he became famous is, and they were everybody's worried about a uh, a recession in the early fifties because the auto people auto industry wouldn't have enough parts. And he went back and he he went through all the parts uh, parts suppliers and so on and figured out oh there are plenty of parts that's not a problem. And so he gave a very contrarian view, which turned out to be right and made his name. Yeah, whatever you whatever a young economist should do is is you you have to you know focus 
on the details of the industry, in addition to the mathematical modeling and everything else. Uh, you, if you look at uh, the, the analysts are really at one end of the spectrum where they, they know all the details about the industry, the parts and so on. They don't have any models. And on the other hand, you have the mathematical models, uh, modelers, and that's what economics has become, a, a kind of a, a dismal specialty in mathematics. And they don't know about the details. And if, you know, where I come in is I kind of bridge the gap. I know about the details and I know about the models. And, uh, and so, you know, it allows me to kind of go places that other people can't. You mentioned earlier that your model suggests oil should be 150. It isn't. I follow a couple of small oil producers out here in Australia, and I noticed that they're not hedging their barrels, except ones that they feel they need just to protect their, you know, their base cash flow for their debts and type of thing. Would you be telling them to take advantage of these high prices and lock it in, or are they wise to sort of speculate, as it were, on the price going up from here? Well, yeah, what I say is tell everybody in the oil business, most people don't listen, is <laughs> look to the example of Mexico. Uh, you know, it's uh, somebody wrote that I think the uh, U.S. producers are going to write off $24 billion in op profit opportunities lost. Uh, because what they do is essentially the uh, the hedges are negotiated at the 19th hole on the golf course. They they buy they will buy puts and they will sell calls. And so as prices go up, they've lost the opportunity on the upside. Uh, Mexico back in 19. Uh, 90 uh, started a very sophisticated program. The IMF has written a lot about this. It was by Pedro. Uh, it was led by Pedro Aspe, who became finance minister as an MIT uh, economist. And what they did is sat down and said, "Look, what we need to do is each year buy puts that establish uh, kind of our base income level." And they negotiate them very carefully. They don't buy the uh, the puts that you see quoted on the exchange. They buy European puts, which are average price. So it's the average price over three months, average price over a year, which are much less expensive. And they negotiate them and they work it very carefully. They have five or six people. So the country does, is not exposed on the downside and has the all the upside potential to it. And this has worked really well. And it's, it's the way every, you know, I think most companies should do it. And I, you know, I think the airlines should kind of uh, should uh, buy, do the opposite and buy kind of uh, some average price op, uh, call options, but, you know, look at it and, and pick a level. And, you know, Mexico is usually uh, several dollars out of the money, but they negotiate it uh, with the banks. They put it out. Uh, they're, they're brutal with the banks, I'm told. And it, <laughs> It is protected the country uh, as compared to look at Sri Lanka or many of these other poor countries that are now looking desperately at the high price of oil. Uh, it's, you know, uh, Ron Duncan, uh, uh, who used to be at the World Bank and uh, uh, then moved back to Canberra, was pushing this idea for years uh, as countries ought to hedge. And uh, I haven't contacted him in a long time, but, you know, the whole idea is that hedging if you're a government, you need to kind of lock the, kind of protect yourself. And Mexico's shown how to do it. So in terms of the recession, though, I've, I take it that you think that'll eventually cut down the oil price. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It's, oh, yes, uh, he says. <laughs> I, I, so, so I was looking for that paper last night because uh, you asked me if I, if I had a, a third, the, uh, the Volcker versus Yamani uh, oil prices in decline. 
and I couldn't find it. But what I did find was a number of articles about the oil companies uh, in the mid 80s, 85, 86, suddenly saying, what what price can we charge you? Because prices went from from uh, from 40 to 10. Uh, And, you know, it's you know, the prices are going to come down uh, in a recession. Demand is going to come down and it's it's a commodity it's it's a commodity cycle and a lot of comp- a lot of these producers are going to go bust well that's in terms of leading indicators would you look to say maybe i know the refining stocks in the the well probably around the world but in the us have gone up because they're just printing money at the moment do you think that will start to weaken as the the demand slacks off and then the market will pick it up and you'll start to see maybe uh show up in various stock prices related yes. to the industry yes yes uh, uh, and I haven't followed stock oil price company stocks for a long time uh, since I'm uh, I'm 77 and uh, I was trying to sit down and organize a uh, cash flow uh, from dividends and so on. I actually bought some oil company stocks and uh, just based on on their dividend yield, and uh, that's turned out to be pretty a pretty smart idea. But it's yeah, it's what you're going to see is these prices the prices will come down. Uh, I follow the BP Royalty Trust because it's a good indicator of where prices are going to go. And it's gone from $2 to $16, 15 15 and something tonight. Uh, and it's, you know, it's going to come, all of it's going to come back down. It, it is, yeah, the the oil exporting countries uh, will not, uh, unless they ch- totally change, uh, won't cut production enough, quickly enough, particularly if this thing is the re- kind of recession I think it's going to be. So you're what you seem to be suggesting, rather than an oil spike going further up here and killing the economy, it's sort of like the diesel price will just slowly choke the demand away. That yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, you, you know, it's a you need diesel to make the economy run, and if you look at uh, the the supply, it's you know the kind of the best outcome you get for the global economy uh, over the next twelve months is a percent and a half. Uh, not the three percent or four percent the World Bank sees, and it could be a minus something. Uh, so that you put that in, plus you put—I I mean, the central bankers are telling us they're going to squeeze until they get the inflation down, and uh, it, between the the high price of food, uh, the shortages the Chinese have created with all their shutdowns and everything else, we're going to be dealing with six, seven, eight percent, maybe not. UK came out with nine percent today. Inflation for another uh, six to nine months, uh, even with tighter money. And so it's, you know, this one of the things we learned uh, uh, in the uh, first part of the 80s was if central bankers are determined, they just keep squeezing until finally inflation gives up. And so are you selling your dividend oil stocks? (laughs) No, it's uh, no, it's I, I just. You know, I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm, you know, the question I have it right now for the yield. I have it for the dividends. I mean, it's, you know, tell me you're going to cut your dividends. If you're 78 and this is part of a part of your income. Yeah. Then, then I'll change from, I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. <laughs> I was just thinking, um, I saw Warren Buffett the other day. He's 91. As you, I'm sure, you know, he's yeah. sitting, he's sitting there very chirpy chatting away. You're saying you're 78. Um, is this something that you'll just keep following to your 91 or are you going to go, look, I've had a gut full of this oil stuff. I'm done. <laughs> uh, 
I promised my wife, uh, 56 years, uh, that I'd give it up when it stopped being interesting. Uh, well, she might now, have a bit of a weight. <laughs> right. Well, uh, what I'm actually, uh, what I'm working on hard is uh, a book. Uh, I'm not getting enough done on it. And I, I, I got to negotiate a publisher, somebody out there I'd like to talk to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, comparing what happened in uh, 1973, how we got ourselves into this in 73 to uh, what's happening today. And, because in 70, following the energy crisis of 73, we had a whole set of changes. Carter pushed a, uh, a number of changes. So the U.S. went and burned a lot of coal. And if you look at our emissions, annual emissions, we got five extra years of annual uh, global warming emissions thanks to that push on coal. It's a mistake. Uh, it, and Carter also said, well, there's no more natural gas left. Well, it turns out he was wrong on that, too. Uh, so, I mean, but this time is different. Those time is different. Famous because, last words. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's different in the following respect. One, uh, we don't have the surplus refining capacity. The majors are gone. So that, you know, that's clear. Uh, two, uh, what you have is all these executives from all these major corporations, uh, the Walmarts, uh, the, Walmarts, the uh, Microsofts, the uh, uh, Googles and so on, pushing on governments to get emissions down uh, and to, to, to bring emissions down. So, I mean, that, whereas, and, and now conservation is considered important in, in uh, uh, 40 years ago, and when you're studying this, uh, if you were pushing a, a new oil plant, you know, kind of the, the uh, uh, threshold rate of return was one, uh, was say 8%, 10%. If you were pushing a conservation project, the threshold rate of return was like 35% or 40% because there was no belief that consumers wanted. And so now conservation is much higher on everybody's uh, list. The industries are working much harder to produce electric, efficient electric heat pumps to electrify. Uh, solar is much, uh, much more promising. So it's all, uh, you know, a lot of these things is different. So that, all of that points to a much more accelerated uh, move off fossil fuels over the next 10 years. And then are, are you thinking then, as of now, the high that oil hit after Russia, and I think it was after the $130 price of barrel, is that oil's high price possibly for good now? Or there could still be a sting in the tail maybe in five years or six years or don't uh, know? Don't know. You don't know. It, 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 you know, I wrote a piece several years ago saying that oil was going to be, we were going to see $300 oil. Uh, you know, we're seeing $150 oil value in products. Uh, uh, crude's not gone there. Uh, it depends. A, a lot of it depends on banks because, you, you know, people are not going to bid prices to $200 a barrel if they can't get funding. And what we're seeing right now uh, with uh, the uh, pressure on uh, global warming is for the banks to stop lending to fossil fuel producers. One of the areas they're not lending in is, is kind of consumer credit uh, or credit to the people to buy, uh, buy cargoes of oil. So, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, you know, it's the finance side of this thing is overlooked, but it's important. Well, as as I, just to, from an Australian perspective, that's already happened to the coal industry and, and the guys say they just cannot get loans. And, and now you end up with, you know, sky high coal prices for India and China because 
it's not around anymore. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, it's uh, there's a, a Bloomberg columnist who writes out of, uh, uh, oh, I want to say Launchester, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, uh, Clyde Russell. Yes, uh, who, Tassie, come, yeah. Yeah, Tassie. Uh, oh, he's Tassie. Okay. I, I, by the way, Tassie is a wonderful country. Uh, and I managed, uh, driving out of the country there, I managed to pick up a traffic ticket. It was one of these hidden. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's uh, the, uh, uh, the yeah, there have been, uh, the U.S. coal produces the same way. Uh, so it's, but, and it's A, to open minds. B, uh, if as prices go up, you need more money uh, for letters of credit and so on. And if the banks are stingy, uh, you don't get that money, so the price doesn't go up. But then you have shortages, and so you get situations like the diesel situation right now, where we have the very high price for the prompt, prompt product because there was no money to finance inventories. Well, Phil, I don't want to hold you up anymore because you've been very gracious with your time. I'm just thinking, with your notes at the moment, is that really designed for oil companies rather than sort of retail readers as such? Well, it's, you know, I, the, I'm the world's worst marketer. <laughs> I, I just I just created it and uh, and I set a price on it and but you know I'm always happy to talk to people share people share it with people and uh, and discuss uh, kind of how, how you know payment schemes it's you know it, it's 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 become less of a business because I have an academic position and it's just become more of a almost a, you know, kind of writing it to keep me going. Yeah. And to keep my thought process going for this books and for other things. And also what's going on. Well, as you say, I mean, I only get the, the glimpses of it. Um, but I, I mean, I love it. I look forward to it. Every time you write a piece, I always get something out of it. And uh, you're a good writer and yeah, you know, your range of reference is, you know, so huge. And uh, it's um, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. So if you're listening to this anyway, um, definitely check out your website and, it's. I did mention that it seemed like you were publishing more. Was that is that someone prodding you in the background? You know, do do a bit well, more. You, you get you gave me the idea of putting this thing out more, and I have a my editor Kim Peterson. Uh, uh, you know, in this modern day of age, my editor lives in, uh, in Key West, Florida, and so uh, and he could he could be in he could be in Tassie as far as that goes. But I mean, I mean, it's uh, so. Uh, but we, you know, you gave us the idea and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll just, we'll send you the notes of the margin so you can see it. I mean, it's, yeah! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, it's, but it's, and, 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 you know, the thing is, uh, I, I like we, uh, people send me emails through the, through the website. Um, and, and we try to, I try to respond to them. It's just, the the thing uh, trying to bring economics and and the economic thinking from from monetary policy and everything else into the energy side and and put it down uh, is is a, almost a losing game when you're talking to a lot of people in the energy sector. Yeah, I, and I go back to talk about uh, hedging. You know, I spent a lot of time trying to explain to a couple of independent oil producers in the United States, name will remain, names will remain anonymous, that they could be looked to Mexico or looked to another way, and maybe they could save a few hundred million dollars. Well, it turns out they could have saved several billion dollars. And they were utterly uninterested. All they want to do is get <laughs> is drill and fill. And, and they're going to go bankrupt. I mean, it is just, it, it is so frustrating. So, you know, but I just you know, have to you know, keep putting this thing out because pe 
a lot of people out there don't get it. And uh, once in a while, I wind up talking to very senior economic people like, on, uh, you know, today, telling, explaining, hey, uh, crude oil is like ice cream. Some of it produces a lot of diesel fuel. Some of it's not. What you want is chocolate ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you really dumped it down for him. <laughs> you have to. You have to. I mean, yeah, you, and you have to have a joke and get them laughing. Otherwise, well, they don't pay attention. Uh, you may not be interested in oil, as in addressing the broader audience here, but it is important. For example, when oil collapsed, and you called it from in 2014 from 100 to 30, that set yeah. the platform for a, a, an expansion in the U.S. economy, right? Because it it lowered everyone's costs so much and uh, made the U.S. extremely competitive with the low natural gas and everything like that. So it does That's, feed into other things. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, this is why this is why I went to the Council of Economic Advisors in the 70s, and this is, I mean. My focus on this thing is as part of the na- uh, of the economy. And my, my concern about the diesel problem is it's going to constrain economic growth. Well, economic, you know, the goal is to get three or four percent economic growth every year to get and to, to have incomes go up and have people living, uh, everybody having a better life. The goal is not to help uh, some person in the Middle East get as get a second. Five hundred million, five hundred million dollar yacht, and, super yacht, <laughs> yeah, super yacht, whatever you want. It's, it's, you know, this, it's, it, yeah, it's I get it. Key, key to the economy, and it's always has been. I mean, it's, it's, and, and the reason I like the uh, went for the futures market is it helped reduce uh, the uh, uh, market power of the producers. Uh, commodity markets make tend to bring prices down and help consumers. Uh, they boost production. They make it profitable to operate. So, I mean, it's basically an econ- uh, 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 a rational economic philosophy. The oil people get mad at me because, you know, they just want the high prices. Yeah, I bet they do. Oh, I will thank you so much. Um, thank you, sir. I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is great. I got to get to Melbourne. Uh, it's a long flight. I got to figure out how to oh, get a horrible a- flight. Um, well, but yeah, well, when you come you, out, Swifty and I will take you out for a drink and uh, okay, get you drunk. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I've learned is I'm very careful of drinking with Aussies because you guys are better. But it's after five o'clock. The the, the sun's over the yard arm here in Denver. Yep. Enjoy. <laughs> <And it's hot. laughs> All right, Anytime. mate. I'll stay in touch. Happy, then, to, ha- happy to help you. Thank you. Cool. Thank that you so really much. Good. Ciao.